0: I don't trust cats they too sneaky you can't trust them like dogs will meet you at the door they go sit down they're happy to see you cats just jump up and run across the room what you running for where are you going i don't like it
1: before they get in your business
2: up on today's show. We have a packed show, and I'm not going to say that every time because I know people do, but this one really is lit. We have Killer Mike who's coming on, and he went from artist to activist, and we all love how he's holding it down here in the A. And then we have Larry Miller who's an author, just released a book. He's been a team president. He's a high powered exec. He's still working for Jordan Brand, doing all these grand things. We're going to talk to him. We're bringing it to the pod today, baby, because there's so many topics. Apparently Cole doesn't like cats I know you guys heard it at the top I was today years old when I found out how much she doesn't like cats so that's what we have coming up today on Montgomery and Company let's go all right, all right, all right. Listen, Rising Grind family, we're not even a month into 2022 yet, so let's look alive. But I gotta talk to y'all right quick because we've been working crazy hard over here at Montgomery and Company to get it where we wanted it to be. We brainstormed what topics, what guests, what name, just anything, and we want to hear from y'all too. So if there's any topics that you guys want us to talk about, tweet us at Montgomery Co. Listen, we took our time with this, and even having done that. We didn't really know how it was going to be received, but top 50 though? Like y'all messed around and put us in the top 50 podcasts in the sports section. So some of y'all might not know how big that is. I didn't really even know until Paul let me know, but that's one of the biggest categories of podcasts. So we hopped in that category. And then speaking of Paul VP, when he hit the group chat to let us know how many of y'all listen, where we ended up ranking I'm going to tell you right now, we started doing do a little shout in the chat. We're a church family, okay? So we started, them feet got happy, boy, I tell you. And this might sound a little bit crazy, maybe bad, but I didn't really set a goal for how many listeners we wanted to have or a milestone. Our only goal was just to put out conversations that were real and authentic. That's the only thing that we wanted to do. We just wanted you guys to like it, and we wanted you guys to be able to take something from it. And we're only one weekend, so I'm not saying this like, oh, we've done anything crazy, but... We believe in celebrating everything, even the small wins. And so that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to continue to bring these conversations about how to build. And then one last thing. I know the sentiment is that we have a long way to go, and I know we do, but I can't help but feel inspired after Martin Luther King Day. The Atlanta Dream, we basically put out a statement, a mission statement, letting everyone know that the foundation and the things that Martin Luther King stood on, that's the foundation that we're gonna stand on with the Atlanta Dream. So I'm feeling real good today, all right? I'm turned up, let's get it. Okay, family, there's been some chit-chit-chatter-chatter, and I want to hear y'all's opinions on it because we got three generations sitting right here in front of me, so we might have three different answers. So, the question or statement is, y'all still cook and take your man his plate and drinks, or is that too much like slavery for y'all nowadays?
3: (laughs) Oh... My goodness! I
1: actually did see this meme on social media. I did. I did. Okay. Oh my god! Can I
0: start Woo! this one out? Let me start. <laughs> let me start this one out.
1: Let's get it. Let's get it. Do you still
2: take your plate? Well, first of all, the question: Do you still make your plate for your husband, my brother-in-law, Shannon? Do you make his plate? Do you take it to him?
0: At home, <laughs> no. At home, you're on your own. But if we're out somewhere, I will definitely get his plate. So give wait it to a him. What? So you don't show out when you outside no. the house. You acting brand new no, when you leave the not. house. He like, like she don't even do it's this. Not even, it's not showing out so much as that. I don't know. It's just when we're at home, we're all doing so many different things. So it's not necessarily me stopping and making sure he has his plate. He could be making my plate. I can make his plate, or we could not be. But eating. then
2: why do you make it when you leave the house? Well,
0: it's <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. That's just the way I do it. Like when I go to other people's houses, and like if he may be sitting somewhere, she catfishing his family. That's what this sounds. like like a I, whole cat But dish. you know what's really funny? <laughs> In my family, I bring him a plate. At his family, he brings me a plate. So we kind of oh. like do it. That's the way it is. He'll bring me a plate. I'll bring him Submission a plate.
2: Submission put- competition. I don't I like know. That. But and I don't I think it
0: should that. feel like slavery because you're <laughs> supposed to be doing, you do things for your loved one just because you love them. I don't think you have to say, right. well, you know, you got my plate last time, so you better get my plate this time. Like,
3: <laughs> let me just add something to that, Nicole. One of the reasons what caught my ear there was that when you're at his house, he helps your plate, and when he's at your house, you help his. It's probably because if it's a special dinner, you might not know what's actually in the pot. I think he's told me. Oh mm. wow! <laughs> oh no, we have a story. We have a story. There's a story yeah. about that. So if you, he knows that you're not going to eat that. He won't get it and put it on your. That's floor. very true.
0: Just think wow. about just, just think about chitlins and different households that eat different things. You know, you make him a plate of what you know he's going to eat. You don't want to slap on a whole bunch of stuff and. And, and then, you know what I'm saying? Just kind of be, just kind of be, I, you're right, Cole, mom.
2: Cole, I, I, I'm still not getting past the fact that Cole's a catfish. <laughs> do you make Diddy's plate at
3: home and away? Because now I've realized I, realize I got to ask two separate questions. Do you make his plate? I do at times, but most of the time he's pretty self-sufficient in, in helping his plate. I just make sure the food is cooked and there and accessible for him to get. Now, I'm not going <laughs> to you know, put it on his plate and open his mouth up and feed it to him or whatever. <gasps> but my grandmother- <laughs> Wow! Now, Wait my, a minute. My grandmother. I was instructed by my grandmother that that was what I should do to be able to keep a man is Ooh, to display high goals. and hand it to him.
1: And, and how many years y'all been married? Fifty.
3: <laughs> almost fifty years. <laughs> so why end. she laugh
1: like that? What who's she clowning? <laughs>
3: because he's been conditioned. Like, as I said, my grandmother <laughs> said that, and I grinned and, and, and you know did not disrespect her and at that particular moment I did hand him his plate but after that I told him do not expect that every time. Wow,
2: (laughs) another
1: catfish cold got it honest. Wow. Let me find out. Roy said he's been tamed.
0: Roy said he's been tamed.
1: Baby tell them about us man. Listen. I'm
0: Sam don't make us look bad. Sam don't make us look bad on here. I love you, sis. Don't you make us look bad
1: look I was raised there's a lot of women in my family all different kinds of generations so I was taught from my mom and my aunts and stuff that you know there is a certain way to be in a relationship when you're married and stuff you do take them their food and, and, and you, do, you do serve your spouse but it's not like a requirement. It's not like a re- so I want to know. this must have been the guy, a guy who wrote this meme or something. Like <laughs> talking about, oh, is that too much slavery? Is that slavery for y'all? That, his girl must not do nothing. So I he know.
0: was salty. That was a salty statement. <laughs> yeah, I exactly, agree. I agree. Exactly. A very salty so, statement.
1: So it's like,
2: I do I'll it tell you right now, cause, cause, cause I'm you lucky to have you. a man. All that <laughs> fishing you doing and all that attitude look,
0: you got. Look, you right days. <laughs> let me tell you, the day I got engaged, we told mom and dad and we got married i told dad and we were married he said now nikki your mouth because he know my mouth yeah, y'all
1: don't is know. Tra- the mouth, tra- of, the mouth <laughs> of the south boy hey. Hey, but she's she been married 20 plus years too i said
0: no he was like he was like i'm telling you nikki your mouth now your mouth <laughs> yeah we've been married 21 years this year so, hey, going you right. see, so doing something going right 21
1: years y'all gotta teach so. me something,
0: so. no you doing it right listen she don't want she. Don't want what you learn from nothing from us apparently
2: <laughs> right so, uh baby baby don't be hanging around snooking Cole because they'll teach you how to act in public and then when I get home I got a whole different human
1: don't listen to them I mean no no they, the the sisters they 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 definitely teach me stuff you know she Cole gives me parenting advice that I had to take I had to let go of Angel a little bit cuz yeah he does my little baby so I definitely listen to my sisters now I listen to All right, and Cole. Well listen I just wanted <laughs> no, to hear i be on real quick, just final okay. answer. I do like to serve, but sh- we serve each other. So, that's it. That I like to serve, okay? Thank and you. And listen, I'm, you know, and it's the new
2: age. You know how Roy's, Roy, Roy, <laughs> our producer, said that they share cooking duties in their house. Yeah, and, I you like know, it. when his wife cooks, he puts up the plates. Yes. and He wipes off the table,
3: yes. and when he cooks, she puts up the plates. Roy, you can come over here to dinner anytime. Anytime. <laughs> you can come to so, Roy is anytime. over here trying <laughs> to get I'm brownie
2: point. Trying. I guess, but look, I clean too. First of all, I clean too. We that's why. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Renee does. She does. I clean too, but Roy's over here trying to get brownie points. She don't cook. She don't cook, but.
3: And Sam, thank God, thank God (laughs) for that.
1: Oh,
2: (laughs) and on that note, I'm out. have Killer Mike. He's half of Run the Jewels, Grammy award winner, the first ever Billboard Change Maker award winner and host of Love and Respect, my guy Killer Mike. or Mike Come on, man. Thank you for joining us here on Montgomery & Company.
5: Yes, thank you. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate you
6: sincerely.
2: Okay, so let's hop back to 2020 where the world was looking at Atlanta. I was here watching the local news, which was pretty much history happening live in real time. There was a lot of energy in the city. There were protests. Can you just walk us through how you and T.I. ended up on stage with our former mayor now, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms? Like, How did that become a thing?
5: T.I. and I own Bankhead Seafood, the restaurant. And we've had a food truck out for the last year and a half. It's not only getting people the food that they've been wanting, but getting, you know, the word out that we're coming back with the full restaurant on Bankhead. So I was hosting the rapper Noriega from Drink Champs, the number one, you know, number one podcast, hip-hop podcast. Yes, I was feeding Noriega some fish. Noriega was rolling and mm. drinking more mm. <laughs> video. And uh, mm-hmm. and T.I. comes to me and says, hey, you know, as it gets darker, the protests, which we support, you know, we support the people raising themselves up and telling government and other organizations, we're not accepting Absolutely. this. They were like, it's it looking like it's going to pivot into violence, that people are kind of stalking violence, but not the people who were originally there. And T.I. and I grew up about four miles from the CNN Center. You pivot west. Then you're going directly into our neighborhood. If you pivot, you know, east, you're going to the city. But what they were telling Tip, you know, we don't know what to do, but we're trying to get someone to say So I was like, well, they called the right person to call you Wow. I ain't doing nothing. <laughs> and Tip was like, man, you know, after about an hour, he was like, well, if you, you don't go. I'm not going. It was, I knew it was important that somebody go. So I couldn't let my friend go by itself. So I thought I, originally I was just going to support my friend. And um, you got to remember, Keisha Bottom, Ti, and I all are from literally the same neighborhood. And then you get down there and you see her checking police like, hey, we're not going to go in yet. You know, we're going to give them time. And then tip, you know, your brother's going to talk. And you're like, OK, I'm in it. You know, you walk past all these police officers, many of who look like you and many of who don't want to go in and hurt people who look like right. you. And I'm just like, all right, your brother said something on the mic. And that's like, oh, it's your turn. And I I said the things I said, because those things are important to say a lot of times uh, because I was mentored directly by the people who organized civil rights. I was, you know, I mentored by James Orange, Andrew Young, Joseph Lowry. These right. people taught me how to organize. So a lot of times right. it seemed like young people in the 60s and stuff, they would just say, hey, we're going to do it and we go protest the riot. Or that's not what happened. Like people had to go through training. This is what you do when right. you're accosted. And it's wrong to have that education and not use it properly. So. I needed people to understand that you had every right to be angry. You had every right to be emotional. I did not want to be there. I was honest in that. But what I do know is that when young people plot, plan, strategize, organize, and mobilize, the world changes. When any people does that, but especially when young people do that, they progress this nation. And I needed people to hear that message and understand that you are absolutely right to feel the way you feel. It is absolutely wrong to burn down your own home absolutely. versus using it as an opportunity to use it as a fort for people to rally around and organize around and progress the nation. So I just wanted to give people that message. And it seems like it resonated because they organized, got a new mayor in this city. Officers that have done wrong in Atlanta seem to be prosecuted to me at a higher rate seeing what happened with the Omar Aubrey trial down in South Georgia, seeing those three people brought to justice. It seems that people really are organizing. And Stokely Carmichael, Bomiture, said that black people must constantly be in a state of organizing. You know, you gotta be organizing at church, organizing in the mosque, organizing in the temples. You gotta be organizing at home, you know, talking to one another, how you're gonna progress. And I think if we stay in a constant state of organization, what we stay is in a constant state of education and, and making little small adjustments to advance just stuff with all people. I, agree. I
3: love that. that,
2: and I yes, mean, I worked, to
3: great world. It was
2: crazy because I remember we were sitting on the couch, and I'm like, Atlanta is turned up in a sense of we're the turning point of elections. We got the Senate runoff going on. We got Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, Killer Mike, and and you guys like representing our city we're watching it live and you're speaking to the community what is it about atlanta that keeps making us that movement point that focal point we say the south got something to say everybody's listening now what is it about atlanta
5: well atlanta's not utopia but what atlanta is is honestly for the last 120 years or so, what this city has been is a place that African-Americans can come and have true opportunity. It's far from perfect. But when Alonzo Herndon started the Atlanta Life Insurance Company, he was feeling the need for Black people in this country to have everything looked after. You know, when John Leslie Dobbs made sure that there was a district in Edgewood and um, Auburn District to make sure Blacks had a financial district. All of this is a culmination of a long line of work. The way you honor this most is by making sure economic opportunity, educational opportunities, all this opportunity remains. It does not make it fair, it does not make it easy, but the opportunity is there. The opportunity was there when Martin Luther King with to Booker T. Washington High School. It was there when Lena Horn went to Booker T. Washington High School. It was there when the Atlanta people like Mac Wilburn was able to be the, you know, at the time, the largest black franchise owner of McDonald's and currently the world's leading Popeyes. It's always been there. It has never been easy, but this city has always provided opportunity for us. And we've taken that opportunity, we've built business, we've built community, and we made sure that opportunity is there for other African-Americans and other people as well. So I don't know who picked Atlanta, uh, but I'm glad
1: you university is I love how you know the history, yes. like, so good. Yes. Like, yes. you know, I went to high school in, in, over here in Atlanta, but, you know, we had Georgia studies. But just listening to, you know, how you talk about the history of Atlanta, I feel like Atlanta history should be taught in a whole separate class because Atlanta, you know, John Wesley Dobbs, those kind of names are names that me as a young person, I see when I'm driving, but I don't necessarily know all the history behind right. that, right. you know? Yeah.
5: My grandmother made me read the encyclopedia. I
1: love that. Mine, too.
5: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I was very happy <laughs> to see, for instance, that um Tyler Perry got his not only his own studio, we got his own exit you extra Tyler Perry yeah. studio. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know though the expressway you're on though. Arthur B. Langford was a legislator in the seventies. If you don't know your history, then you kind of can fall in a place where you don't understand that people who look like you have accomplished a lot more and they're the shoulders that you stand on. And my grandparents mm-hmm. Thought it was very important that I know history. So, you know, they were mm-hmm. unrelenting in making sure that I knew. And, you know, I'm unrelenting in making sure my children know as well. Yeah. I have a 24 year old daughter who is a, you know, a radical revolutionary woman and all her thoughts and actions, and boy, <laughs> it can be type You know what I mean? But, but, but.
1: Hey, she's <laughs> a strong woman. I like that. <laughs> what?
5: I'm talking about, man, that's how I just did a four or five days vacation with the kids, man. Oh, she did. She did great you need
0: time. a vacation from the oh. vacation, man. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you talked
2: about educational opportunities and knowing your history. You're a Morehouse man. And one thing we know about Atlanta is HBCUs and the pride that come with those HBCUs and that history. We have Howard, Morehouse, Morris Brown, Clark, Spellman, to name a few. But for people that don't know or may not know why HBCUs are important or what that experience is like, can you just talk about that a little bit?
5: Well, I'm going to tell you the beautiful thing about me. I didn't understand the importance of it. I understand that we had our own sets of colleges, and I understood that was because, you know, when you hear about Mary McLeod Bethune and Bethune-Cookman College, you, you know, very early I learned, you know, there's a place my grandmother's from, Tuskegee. So I knew about Tuskegee okay. University, yes. Booker T. Washington, those students building the bricks themselves to make that institution. But what I didn't understand is how special my childhood had been. I grew up in the Collier Heights community, which is a community started in 1946 by Black people for Black people. Now, at the time, to give you an understanding on what's going on, there had been a GI Bill. There had been um, the Federal Housing Administration. They had created incentives for people to get mortgages and houses. The people that were included were white. They literally excluded Black people from being able to get homes to get mortgages. So when you're talking about 1950. Two, when my grandmother bought a house, there was no Feds doing this. This is black people entering their own contracts financed by black banks, making sure they could do it for their black sales. They started a community called the Carrier Heights by black people for black people. I went to Carrier Heights Elementary. My principal lived in my neighborhood. My sixth grade teacher lived 20 houses down on the right. It was so enclosed. I didn't see four white teachers my whole life. Uh, We had Sally, who we think was white in third grade in elementary. What do you
2: mean you think?
5: We think she was white. She tanned really dark. She could have been Creole. But our our thing was we did lack confidence or competence because everyone who was a hero or a villain looked like us. So I didn't really get into meeting and integrating with white kids until I started organizing about 13, 14. I had the black college experience in elementary school. I had the black college experience in high school because I went to Frederick Douglass High School. By the time I got to Morehouse and I got to meet people like my friend Jim, who was a, a mixed race kid. He was his dad was black. His mom was white. His mom had raised in Seattle. Jim hadn't been around black people at all. And then, as I'm seeing him interact with other black people, I'm seeing the confidence start to grow. I start to really understand the confidence and competence part of going to black schools. It's important that our children be with one another. I say even before college, but if you got to wait to go to a HBCU, that's fine because it gives you a confidence and a competence that you're not going to gain anywhere else. When you go to Howard, you go to Morehouse, when you go to Dillard, you know, when you go to FAMU.
3: That's
5: right. Yeah, a, if, you, if you go to these schools, you're around people who look like you that have succeeded. And when they say iron sharpens iron, that's true. You have no excuse (laughs) to fail. Chief Judge Austin Jackson pushed us when we were in high school. So by the time she went up to Buffalo to go to school, I can imagine she was a beast and a terror. Mm-hmm. But what she wouldn't do is let her fellow black students give up on themselves. So right. black colleges beautiful. are important because they put you in an environment where you're being encouraged, not discouraged on a daily basis. I love, yeah,
1: that. I love that. I love that. And I went to school in Mableton. I don't know if you're familiar with Pebble Brook High School. I know
5: Pebble <laughs> I know, know, know McKee-Tree.
1: okay, okay. So you know, you know. So, you know, I, I you know, like, Like what you're saying gives me goosebumps because it's so true to go to school with the people that are like you, that look like you, because I had that experience in high school. But then when I went to Kennesaw State and it was a completely different like demographic, I felt like I was questioned a lot as a Latina, as a minority. I felt like I was the exception. If I did well, it wasn't the norm. You know, it was different. It was different.
5: God bless their soul. Everyone gets told the story of victimization to the point you don't realize until you get out. Well, I didn't realize until I get out. Like, okay, bad stuff happened. It wasn't right. We were victimized, but I'm not a victim. Like you you can't go to Frederick Douglass high school and you walk in Frederick Douglass high school every single day. And the first words they meet you with is without struggle. There is no progress. So every day in that high school, you were expected to have to work hard to progress. So, you know, there's just something about Keeping black and brown children, period, around one another. There's something about having those children of mixed incomes, some rich, some poor. Something about that that really does sharpen iron, sharpen iron, and it gives you the confidence (laughs) to be competent.
2: And you know, we've talked about the HBCUs, like Snook said, shouts to West Virginia State University, because that's where my parents met. One of my sisters went there. Yeah, so I grew up kind of being able to see the step shows, the black excellence. You know, I grew up in West Virginia, so I had wild dynamics of my school was all white, but homecoming was turned up. Absolutely. You know, my every sister year. was stepping every in the step year. show. Every it's year. lit every year, right? <laughs> so like every, every year, year it was an event. So I saw those two different dynamics and that's exactly why next year we, uh, you know, I talked about it with you. There's going to be an HBCU homecoming tour in 2022 to get people familiar with what's going on. You know, there's almost a mystique about it that I don't think should be mysterious. People should know and see why it's so lit. Why people smile when they talk about HBCU HBCU homecomings the football games you're coming to FAMU you gotta roll with us to Morris Brown as well but you got a little mini me now Mikey which is your daughter a hooper talk about being a girl dad because that's a whole different world especially when you're a girl dad in the sports world and you see the different dynamics of how sports is treated on the men's side and how sports is treated on the women's side
5: yeah, we had that. As we were vacationing, we were talking about my daughter, Anaya, the older one, she's 24. Anaya was the team manager, so she kept the clock up. The players did that. And she helped the girls and boys teams. My daughter, Mikey, plays. Her sister plays. And they were talking about fairness and equity around female athletes and getting paid. Come on. Wow. Come on. Wow. That's amazing. At yeah, their age. A 14-year-old's talking about money. I'm like, all your money comes from me. What's this? <laughs> <laughs> kind of true. <laughs> <Girl>. <laughs> but um being a girl dad first of all i'm proud of my kids at whatever they do my children whatever their interests are i'm like i'm with it so mikey started playing basketball i was happy just because you know mind body and soul i wanted her to be moving her body as well as her mind and her soul was cultivated but i really started to understand the importance of not only parent support but dad support in particular because to look off that court and see her father yelling and screaming and acting a fool. There's a different sort of, of pride in that smile where she's just like, oh man, sit down, you're embarrassing <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm very proud of her because she's interested in doing it. I'm very proud to be cheering for her. You know, I have a job where people cheer for me every night on stage. So I know how good that feels. I want my 14 year old daughter to know that I am adamantly her fan as a human being, not just as a player. You know, as a human being, it matters to me that she goes out on that court if she's tired, if she works through it. It matters to me that if she has a bad game, she shakes it off and gets to the next game successfully. It matters to me. Not because I want my daughter to necessarily be the illest basketball player ever. I want her to be confident. What Black children in particular are lacking is not the competence to do things. They're lacking the confidence to know their competence. So for me, being a girl daddy has been a blessing because it allows me to cheer for the people that most need cheering for. It allows me to cheer for the people who are one day gonna be the leaders in my community, the leaders of my family. You know, It allows me to cheer for the little human being that I helped create that definitely is special and unique. So I, I really am humbled that the universe gave both my daughters to me, all my children, but my daughters in particular, are very strong-willed, very opinionated, And usually fact-checked a lot better than their brother.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love that. You have a show on PBS called Love and Respect. I was on there. I got to chop it up with you. I saw Tyler Perry was on there, amongst other names. But talk about Love and Respect. Why was it important right now?
5: It's important right now because we're so polarized. And because people can hide behind computers, it seems that all we're becoming are tribes of people arguing over who's right. Mm -hmm. and I don't want to be right as much as I want to be right and just. And I want to be righteous. I don't want to be religiously righteous. I just want to be right with people. I want people Mm -hmm. to know I can disagree with you, but that does not mean I have to hate you. You can disagree with me, but you don't have to hate me. We can converse. We can find common ground. You know, I have found a lot of times um, in my DMs, the people that Oftentimes end up trading information and education with me the most are people you would perceive as very conservative white males. I remember going through my DMs and Twitter and a white woman contacted me saying, Thank you. It was doing a controversy where people were people were angry that I'm very pro-Second Amendment. I'm 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 pro-blacks in particular, should own guns, they should train relentlessly, especially in these times. And the woman said, she said, I've been wanting to get my husband to watch the documentary called 13th that talked about the 13th Amendment. And he would oh, not watch it. He assumed man. it to be liberal propaganda. And she said, because I watched your Colin Nora interview with him about guns, he watched 13th with me. She mm-hmm. said, you changed my stance on guns. I had never thought guns to be needed or necessary, but I understand. And she said, you changed my husband's stance on systemic racism. He now understands that slavery never stopped or ended. It was redistributed through that amendment saying that slavery is illegal, except for the prisoner. And soon after slavery ended, Jim Crow laws come into effect that make black men members of chain gangs and make black men prisoners. He said, you brought a new understanding to my household. And that's my understood that you're going to take some slings and arrows. You're going to be unpopular sometimes. But the message is more important than your ego. You know, so I find myself in my DMs talking a lot to people who are perceived as conservatives. And I'm like, it's not enough for me to simply talk to these people in private. We have to show the world that love and respect is transformative. And the best way to do that, to me, is through television, and in particular, public television. Why? Because public television right. changed my life. I right. told you, I grew up in an all-Black enclave with all-Black people. I didn't know white folks. I just knew white folks all the time been like us, and my grandfather would say stay away from them if you he can't. Hey. <laughs> That's old people's talking. He said, keep you one or two good white folks, but as a man, don't go to Cobb County, don't go to Gwinnett, don't go to <laughs> Cobb
3: County's the worst, I know. Your grandfather and my grandfather must have grew up in the same neighborhood. <laughs> exactly, tell them.
5: But I, but I... um. I learned I learned about white people. I learned about white people honestly through PBS, the Fred Rogers, the members of the Electric Company, Sesame Street, Bob Ross. What I started to see was, oh, okay, we're all just human beings. We may look different, we may have a different hue or skew, but we all are human beings that want better for children that want better for ourselves. So I wanted to be a Fred Rogers for another generation. I want it to be a conversation holder where mm-hmm. people don't have to look like one another or even agree if they do look like one another. Because in a world where everyone's polarizing, arguing, that's what kids see and that's what they think is normal you need people to be able to sit down and converse so that there's another an alternative normal.
1: Beautiful. I love
2: that. Love it, love it, love it. Lead with love, that's always and you talked about kids need to see it and generational things and we talk about generational wealth, generational inheritance. What does that next generation look like in our families and here at Montgomery and Company we always talk about it's a generational thing. I say it out loud. I want to have generational wealth for my family so that my son can have it, my nieces, everyone what are your thoughts on generational wealth?
5: Well, a lot of times people when they hear generational wealth because we've had cool jobs. They think we're talking about millions and billions and zillions of dollars. That's not what we're <laughs> talking about. Now, if you happen to become a millionaire or a billionaire, that's a very intentional thing. You've got to plot players, strategize, organize and mobilize and do that. But generational wealth is this. My great grandparents were the sons and daughters of people who were enslaved. My great grandparents were then sharecroppers, in which they were paid unfairly for being overworked and underpaid, but they managed to save enough money to buy 40 acres in Tuskegee, Alabama. What? Out of those 40 acres, the state took some acres for eminent domain to go to highway and things of that nature, but there are over 20 acres still left. Those 20 acres now are leased out to a lumber company. We still get residual checks every January from that lumber company because my great grandparents were intentional in understanding that we have to leave something for our children and their children and grandchildren alike. My grandparents owned houses. The fact that my grandfather owned an extra house allowed rental income to come in, which allowed us to vacation. My grandfather said that when I die. Don't raise the price on my tenants. Let her stay here till she dies. We followed his instruction. Wow. We did that after she died. My sister then acquired the house. My sister got along, fixed the house up. My sister still lives in that house today. When my grandmother died, the same house we grew up in, Collier in Heights. My other sister now owns. My dad's mother. I bought her lot, and now I own that lot. Generational wealth Beautiful. is leaving, and it is usually home ownership. You know, I looked at something yesterday that said how blacks were cut out of home ownership. Um, post-World War II and the GI bills and the Federal Housing Administration and how it really held us back for 80 years. It didn't allow us to be homeowners. It didn't allow us to leave. It didn't allow equity to accrue for us. A lot of white people got a chance to be educated because of the equity in their parents' homes. A lot of us were not educated simply because we didn't have post-secondary education because we didn't have the means to do that. Generational wealth is simply you taking financial and physical responsibility for yourself and the ability to leave something of value or work for the next generation that comes after you. My wife and I worked vehemently hard to do that for our children. Uh, my grandparents did it for us. My great-grandparents did it for them. So I'm happy to be in the lineage of that because I'm a product of generational wealth. Does not mean I was a millionaire in my family before. Does not mean that they had extraordinary amounts of money. But what they had was some land to leave us. And we could work that land ourselves and till it ourselves or we could rent that land out and that's what we've done well
3: Mike I think you're absolutely on point with that I think our family as well with the generational wealth I know my grandparents raised me and no they were not millionaires or no they didn't have a lot of things that uh, other people had but the one thing they did stress was education and I'm a pusher of education and I think it helps to ensure generational wealth because you have something to back it up and so my grand Parents were probably considered, if you were to look at the charts then at poverty, but because they pushed education, got me my education, I am no longer in that particular uh, position. And my kids, I pushed education on them. And hopefully you just keep it going, keep it going and growing like that. So that's very important.
5: Absolutely. I agree. I my grand my grandmother, I was tested and found to be dyslexic in 11th grade. And she said, it's too late now. You know how to read. You just read it to three times. <laughs> you know what?
2: <laughs> and what did you do? You went about reading it and getting it done.
5: <laughs> Thanks to Ms. Harrison of Harrison Baker Center. I could read going into kindergarten. I didn't wow. understand why letters were flipping or changing, but from a common sense perspective, my grandmother was like, you know, that's a D for deer. That ain't a beef of bear. So you so I was, you know, and mine was mild enough to work through, but. Because of that, I've worked very hard at making sure that kids with dyslexia are helped. Uh, we're looking mm-hmm. forward to doing something more in terms of growing something foundational for them. But yeah, education is the key, and not just college. I want black kids to understand out there that trade skills matter. You can be a plumber, make as much as a dentist, and you can read as much as a doctor. Because mm-hmm. I argue with my lawyers over their hourly fee. I've never argued with my plumber. And my lawyer says, well, with the I said, "Cause he's cleaning up shit for real." I'm not gonna do that. I can read a law book myself. I don't know how to. I don't know how to fix this toy oh. I love it.
2: I love it. Killer Mike, awesome. Thank you so much, Killer Mike. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. The discussions that happen on social media at all times there's always a discussion there's always a goat chat there's always who's the best there's always a this or that so we like to bring those discussions to the podcast which is a little thing we like to call bring it to the pod and the first thing we have up that i'm going to ask everyone is Socks or no socks? What do you prefer when you go to sleep?
3: Well, my sleeping with socks is seasonal. So <laughs> in the summer, I don't sleep with socks at all. But in the winter months, I sleep with socks uh, most of the time. And one of the things what? about my sleeping is uh, I usually sleep with one foot from under the cover in the winter time. <laughs> and so the foot that's from under the cover has on a sock, but the one under the cover doesn't. So sometimes it can be no, ma'am. Um oh my
2: there's no
3: way that you yeah. have one sock on and one sock off yes. in the holiday in the winters ask your dad yes that's how I do it and I always sleep on the same side so it doesn't make a difference so if my left foot is always socked and my right foot is always oh unsocked oh my goodness
2: oh in my goodness Nicole please tell me that you aren't one sock on one sock off socks are no socks
0: when you're sleeping cold no no socks. It's too hot. I have about <laughs> three blankets on my bed. I don't need socks. When I get in the cover, it is a cocoon of heat. So I do not need any socks whatsoever. I never have <laughs> socks Thank on you for
1: some normalcy, <laughs> Serena. <laughs> I think it depends honestly I think I don't know I like to do socks on just because I'm like cold natured but also like in the Dominican Republic and in New York there's a lot of rats and mice and things like that so they used used to scare me when I was little and they used to say that if we used to sleep with our feet out that the rats or the mice would bite on our toes so I don't like having my feet out I have a thing about having my feet out when I sleep I don't do that I don't do that I did not know that's why you don't like to have your
2: feet out we don't Mm -mm. have rats here, boo boo. You don't have to sleep with your socks on here, <laughs> but I get it. Now you're scared. As for me in my house, y'all already know it's no team no socks over here. Thank it's too, you. first of all, like that's too much clothes to go to sleep yes. in. It's uncomfortable. Yes. I'm gonna be hot. And I'm one of the people that I like to be snuggled up under the covers. That's a part of being in the bed. You wanna be like submerged in the covers. If I have socks on, one or the other has to go, and it ain't gonna be the covers. So that's my <laughs> choice. I'm so sad to hear that they was nibbling off. in in the DR. That's tough. (laughs) That's a tough blow. But I'm going to move on to one that, oh, boy, this is going to be interesting. And I think I know everybody's answers before I ask. But I know that this is a great debate because one of my hosts on TMZ Sports, Michael J. Babcock, he's a huge cat lover. So the question is, cats or dogs, bring it to the pod. I'm going to start with you,
1: Serena. Looking cool. I'm allergic to both so (laughs) I can't choose either one of them I love both. I love every time I see a a puppy or a cute little cat, I'm like, Oh my God, they're so cute, but I can't touch it. So I can't. (laughs) So you're not, are you choosing neither this nor that? You're not going to bring it to the the, pod. There has to be an inclusive option for people who are allergic. Like me. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) She's saying we need inclusive
2: options. Neither for the allergic people. So, (laughs) or birds, fish, anything. (laughs) I'm a fish person, but the question is, fish fish are cool.
1: Fish are cool. Mm.
2: Serena saying
3: neither. book of what are you choosing? Well, we've had both, I must say. And I just sent a picture in our chat on Sunday. Of uh, this cat who visits our house and he was making himself home. He was posted up there in my garden, sitting like he owned the place. My only, <laughs> my only uh, thing that I ask animals like cats that visit is that if they come to my house, they come to work. So find any <laughs> rodents, uh, oh snakes, mice, or whatever. Have at it. Take it home with you, whatever. But just don't come over here being lazy. Now, you can't be loathing oh, wow. But I am a dog person. We've had dogs. Most of uh, most of my life, so I am. So Snooker Booker says person. she don't
2: care if it's a cat or dog, but hold your weight when you come around our parts. It don't matter what you are. You better hold, own your keep. So that means if you're a cat, you better clean up the rats. Look, we have gardens. We have a lot of vegetables. Critters. Don't let Don't let the critters eat up our good greens that Snook
0: has just planted. Cole, what you got? Cats or dogs? Uh, dogs hand down. I don't trust cats. They're too sneaky. You can't trust them. Like, dogs are predictable. Dogs will meet you at the door. They go sit down. They're happy to see you. Cats just jump up and run across the room. What you running for? Where you going? I don't like it. I don't like it I don't like it so no I'm definitely a dog I'm not a fish person we have fish that was a disaster in my house I promised myself I would never have another fish <laughs> so we our kids put gatorade in the fish tank thinking the fish were thirsty i don't know how that works they were little oh they didn't understand so we woke up oh to my water and half dead fish never again so i don't like no. fish i don't want any birds I, I i love my dog but he will be the last critter that i own and that's it dogs only cats are too sneaky can't trust (laughs) them
2: dogs only Cole said cats she don't like when she don't know what you thinking you running all over the place hissing for no reason they did say that dogs are a man's best friend so I'ma just go with the inclusive option of neither I'm sorry guys look I got onto (laughs) Serena and then I liked it when it was presented because for me look I'm allergic too that's why it works out great for me and Serena but I have a really, so let me just tell people, I have a really strong nose and that means anywhere I go, if there's a a hint or a scent of anything, I smell it more than the average person. So, if there's dogs in your house, I know that people are clean and they're like, oh yeah, I'm clean. I smell the dog. Like, in the cleanest of cleanest (laughs) houses and the people that say they clean their houses and it's the, I smell dog and it's not like, ew, it stinks, it's just I can smell it. And when you have other animals I can can smell smell. it (laughs) and so when I walk into my house and I can smell candles because that's what this house we always have a candle burning at all times in this house that's what I want to smell I don't want to smell dog I don't want to smell cat that's just me
1: our producer said cats are evil (laughs) <laughs> and I've been watching we've been watching too many scary movies that we've been watching uh it's always the Mummy a it's Jeepers always Creepers cat. it's like cats. they say cats are from the underworld I don't know what to believe I mean it, I, I don't know I don't know I don't know what to <laughs>
2: believe either but I'm gonna move on Booker. you had something to say what is it?
3: Well I just want to add uh, Serena knows we've talked about this so uh, my grandmother told me that I was born with a veil over my eyes so I could see oh, yeah. oh, the supernatural goodness. stuff and I could see things that other people might not be able to see. I could figure it out. So Serena said she was told the same thing that she had a veil over her <laughs> eyes and she could see things too. Well, what I want to do with this last question about cats or dogs and your nose that you can smell everything. So I guess you inherited that from your dad because he's got one of those super noses that he can smell oh, everything. Gosh. So I guess uh, some of my kids were born with a veil over their eyes and you were born with a veil over your nose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: That's what you wanted to say, Stephanie so- <laughs> that's what she was really wanting to get out she couldn't look look at her she's tickled too okay so i have a veil over my nose snooker booker wanted me to know that and i'm not mad about it the next one the next bring it to the pod now this one you know i feel like i'm going i feel attacked i'll just say this for the next this or that that we're going to bring to the pod I feel a little bit attacked because I know that I'm probably not in the majority on this one. But I'm going to ask anyway, Cole, this or that, we're bringing it to the pod. Milk in the cereal first or cereal first and then the milk in your bowl? Which one is it? Cereal first. So you pour your cereal first I and do. then you pour your milk on top yes, of your cereal. Because
0: I don't drown my cereal. Some people drown the cereal. I pour the cereal and then the cereal is still is still a pile above the milk. It's supposed to be... Ah! Now, look at yes. Cole already trying no, to no, explain no, no, that no, she no, likes soggy no, no. cereal. I don't like Cole's soggy. <laughs> I don't like soggy cereal. I want someone to still have the crunch and the taste to it. It not be a whole mess. Then you the milk, you can't even drink it. You're drinking bits. It's just crazy. I just, I'm just not. Cereal. So first. So Cole
2: said she's pouring her cereal first. That's right. Serena, what are you doing? Are you pouring the cereal in the bowl, then pouring the milk? Or are you pouring the milk and
1: then the cereal? Well, I didn't even know that, that was like a real question. I thought that everybody just does the cereal first first, until I met you, until I met you, and I'm like, I don't even, okay, you're just different, because I don't even know people did that, but she does the milk first, and then the cereal, and I think that that's just, like, kind of weird, but I don't even say anything, I'm like, (laughs) to each his own to each his own wow I, just, I told you I I'm felt like I'm I knew it was coming <laughs> I'm normal I'm a 90's kid I grew up watching all, all these cereal commercials everybody puts a cereal in first there you go I don't you're right. <laughs> I think about that yes they poured cereal <laughs> first soggy cereal in. She
2: so she's team soggy cereal snookabooka booka. what is yours
3: <laughs> You know, we've always put the cereal in the bowl first and then the milk because depending on what day it is, you might not have much milk. So you put the cereal in the bowl so you can divide the milk evenly amongst the people who are eating the cereal. And the thing about the sogginess is, well, you don't pour the milk on your cereal and then you go fix your coffee or your tea or whatever. Right. Whenever you put your milk on oh, your cereal, wow. it you should be in ready? front of you and you should exactly. be sitting down. So
2: now we have to be to in eat. an eating competition to see how how fast you can eat your cereal because you know that there's a time limit. Once you pour all that milk on top of all the cereal, so let me explain myself since I've been called weird and I do things different. And you are correct. I do do things different, but here's my thought process. I like to pour the milk in there so that only the bottom layer of the cereal that's living in the milk. Cause I'm like Cole, I don't drown my cereal in a bunch of milk. So I like only that bottom layer that's in the cereal to be submerged in the milk. Then I like to just kind of dip the spoon in there and let the other top, I have super crunchy cereal almost every bite and I can go make my tea if I wanted to because you know what I'm not on a time constraint I'm not on the clock to see how fast I can eat my cereal to make sure that it's not soggy so I would like to ask this question because this this is a problem here has anybody tried it my way
0: no only way you can do that is if you eat Captain Crunch because that cereal stays hard about two hours after you eat it it's so <laughs> no, hard no baby it I eat tricks, Cheerios that tricks is hard it. too. Tricks I can eat too. whatever
2: I like and oh, it's going to be goodness. nice and crunchy so if you guys haven't tried my way, I think I got some homework. I think I need y'all to go next time you eat cereal. Pour the milk first. It will change your think, life. Unless you like soggy cereal and keep doing what you're doing. That's all I'm saying.
1: I want some I digress. Captain Crunch now. Oh, you
2: being hung?
1: I was What's literally thinking hungry? about that cereal. So once you said it, I was like... Oh. Oh, my God. I was thinking about Captain Crunch when you were talking about cereal. So it's crazy that she said that. <laughs> but when
3: you do it that way, Renee, don't you have to fight with your cereal to get it submerged? Some of those cereal no, cereals don't submerge no. easily. You have to be pushing no. it down. It's popping back up. Yeah. And then I feel like I no. got to throw the milk away. It's a whole half a gallon of milk in the bowl. I don't put
2: a lot of milk in mine at all. I'm like oh, you. Okay. I put a small, small layer of milk layer. at okay. the bottom okay. of the bowl. And that's why I said only that bottom layer is submerged. I'll if you try haven't tried it, try it. Try it. On September 30th, 1985, at 16 years old, Larry Miller committed a crime that ended up putting him in prison. He committed a murder. He said it was a senseless act, and since then, he's went on to be a high-powered executive. He's going to tell us all about his journey and where he is now. Larry Miller.
4: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why?
2: Larry, for joining us here on Montgomery & Company.
7: My pleasure to be here.
2: You're a man with a lot of friends in high places. You've rubbed elbows with presidents. Michael Jordan is a close friend. David Stern was a mentor. You even have people like Kanye West on Speed Down, which is like crazy. So growing up in Philly, did you ever see yourself living a life like this?
7: Uh, Never. I'm living beyond my wildest dreams. I never thought that I would be able to uh, have the kind of job that I've had or the kind of career that I've had and definitely not, you know, interacting with the kind of people that I've been fortunate enough to interact with and work with.
2: And, you know, you've had a lot of dream jobs. And so I know they're all different and all, you know, people say it's like kids, you can't choose your favorite, but I would love for you to try because you're currently still with the Jordan brand. You ran an NBA franchise, you've authored a book. What's been your favorite position to play? Like are they all I know they're all different, but what role do you feel like is
7: your role? So, when I was about to graduate from college with my undergraduate degree at Temple, I decided to interview with some companies that I knew I didn't want to work for, but I wanted to get the practice so that when the companies that I want to work for come in, I'm ready for it. And you know, they they always had the question of, oh, uh, so where do you see yourself in five years? Right? That's- <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> my undergraduate degree is in accounting. So the typical answer would be, oh, I want to be a CFO I want to be a controller. But my thought was, I want to be in a position or in a role where I can help make decisions of where a company is going to go, the direction a company is going to go in. Somebody else makes the decisions and then I'm just one of the people that carry it out. I I wanted to be a decision maker. And that has kind of carried over to the jobs that I'm in. But to me, being a decision maker also means taking responsibility if it ain't the right decision.
2: Heavy is the head that wears the crown. Come on now.
7: You got to be willing to take responsibility either way, and I was willing to do that. And that's the approach that I've taken with all of my jobs. To say what's the favorite, I mean it's. It's kind of easy for me. It's the Jordan role. It's no, you know.
2: it don't get no better than Jordan.
7: <laughs> and if I didn't say that, MJ would be all over. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I, I, I have had some amazing experiences in my career, some amazing opportunities. And, and working for Jordan has been a dream. Working with MJ is, is amazing. You know, people don't really know what an uh, incredible person he is. And I've been blessed to not only work with him, but to... Be a friend
2: people might think that Jordan brand has always been booming with shoes like the retro one high OGs that gets re-released and sells out in minutes but the shoe game hasn't always been that way and during your tenure with Jordan you nearly doubled the revenue of the company like doubled the revenue of Jordan brand so what accomplishments are you like most proud of to date and what do you attribute to that financial jump to double the revenue of such a company like Jordan
7: I, I did two stints with the Jordan brand the first one, was when we first started Jordan as a separate brand within Nike. We started the Jordan brand around 99, 2000. And my first job at Nike was, I was the head of apparel in the US when I first started at Nike. I did that for about a year and a half. And then I was asked by Phil Knight and Michael Jordan to put a team together and strategies together of how we were gonna take the Jordan logo and actually create a brand. At the time we were looking to do this was when Michael Jordan was about to retire from the Bulls for the last time. So um, there was a lot of angst around. Hey, you guys are trying to start this while MJ's about to retire. But we believed that we had uh, an opportunity to create something that you know could connect with consumers in a really good way. So we decided that hey, even though Michael's retiring, we still think there's an opportunity here to to build something. So that was the first time I was with the brand and we started, it was about 140, 150 million dollars. And then I I left in 2007 and the business was almost at a billion dollars when I left. I went to the Trailblazers. I was the president of the Portland Trailblazers for five years. Right before I got there, the Blazers were going through some tough times. Uh, They were known as the Jailblazers. There was a lot of trouble and a lot of people, you know, that were having issues. So one of the things that I was kind of charged with was helping to turn that around. And so I was at the Trailblazers for five years. And then Nike kind of reached out and I ended up going back to the Jordan brand. And when I left, we were just about at a billion dollars. And when I came back, we were just about a little over a billion dollars. Um, but this year we're going to be about five billion dollars. Oh, goodness.
2: Ooh, yeah. Because awesome. you were crushing everything you yeah. were doing. You always seemed to find a way to level up. And I'm curious. How do you know when it was time to go and work for the Portland Trailblazers? You're already sitting pretty. A lot of people never know when is it time to move from one to the other. What was your decision making in when you decided to go to Portland?
7: So the Trailblazers reached out and I was like, you know, I'm good. I, I, you know, I'm running a Jordan brand. Things are on a nice little roll. I'm good. And um, they continue to engage and we kind of talked back and forth. And Paul Allen, who was the owner at the time, made me an offer. I had like a weekend to decide because Nike came back with a counter offer that I couldn't have asked them to do anything more. So now I had to make a decision. Am I going to stay at Jordan and continue doing what I'm doing or go to the Portland Trailblazers and do something that I've never done before? I didn't know anything about running an NBA team. And it was a tough decision. And I was going back and forth and I had the weekend to make the decision. That Sunday morning, There was a place near where I was living in Portland called Bonneville Hot Springs. And it was like this hot mineral water deal where you could go and soak in this mineral water and then they wrap you and massage you and all this. And I was like, I need something to just kind of clear my head. And the other thing is cell phones didn't work up there. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to drive up there soak in this mineral water, get a massage and just clear my head. And hopefully that'll help me make a decision.
1: That sounds so relaxing.
7: I was sitting in this tub in the mineral water and I'm sitting there relaxing. And I've kind of come to the decision that, you know what, I, I think I'm going to stay with Jordan and, and continue to do that. I kind of lay back and closed my eyes. And in my office at that point, I had a picture of Jackie Robinson on his first day going into the Dodgers locker room and that image popped into my head and i'm like you know this is an opportunity for me to open a door for people that look like me that hasn't been opened before and may never get opened if i don't do this and so that was what made me make the decision to take the job with the trailblazers it was really about trying to set an example and show that someone that looks like me can do a job like this we thank I love you it. we yes, thank you
2: I was about to say, yeah. I need to personally thank you because even me being a co owner of the Atlanta Dream right now, things, your decisions determine those kind of things down the line that you had no idea, but now people believe I could do it because you've done it and people like you have done it before. So yes. just wanted to say thank you for that yes, decision because that's forward for... thinking.
7: Yes. Yeah. I, I, um, when I started at Nike in 1997, I didn't realize at the time, but I was the first black vice president in the history of the company. And I didn't know that at the time when I started there, but it put a little bit of extra pressure on me to feel like, you know, I've got to come through. I've got to do a good job with this because if not, you know, it might affect other people's opportunities. And that's, and it's true.
0: Yeah.
2: And that's what I think about, Constantly, in a sense of if you're going to be the blueprint, well, it has to go right because people are looking at to see if if they could do it again. You know, you clearly have a beautiful mind, which is why people want you part of their company. And you know, with the WNBA getting their attendance up. I believe the Portland Trailblazers led the Western Conference in average home game attendance. So you said you didn't know necessarily what to do. How do you tackle a job where you don't know what to do?
7: Well, I think, uh, first of all, I think uh, most jobs or most of what I was doing, a lot of it applies regardless of the industry, right? A lot of how you manage, how you lead people, just the things that you do to do your job a lot of it is the same no matter what the industry is. Then you have to learn the nuances of that industry and figure out how do you function within that, that industry. You know, when I went to the Trailblazers, it was definitely, definitely a challenge for me to figure out like, hey, how, how, what do I need to do here? But one, one of the differences, I convinced Paul Allen that I should be not only business basketball as well most as you as you know in most of the teams there's the business area and then there's the basketball right so i convinced paul allen that i should be responsible for both business and basketball so all the business reported to me and the general manager gm reported to me so i was involved in all of the decisions of drafts and trades and all that but what my real goal was with that was to bridge that gap between basketball and business, because I felt like if we could get everybody on the same page, then the business people would understand what they should and could ask for from basketball and basketball would understand what business needs. And so to me, we could get everybody on the same page and make things easier for everybody. And it actually worked. When I first got there, I put together an offsite, meeting and um invited all the senior people in business and i invited the general manager assistant general manager and the coach head coach who was nate mcmillan was our head coach at the okay, time shouts
0: okay shouts to the, the hawks. hawks yes great yes. guy
7: by the way Nate, nate's an amazing guy he and i are still really good friends so i invite all of them and a couple of days before the event nate I think he actually came in my office and he said, uh, hey, hey, boss, you 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 really need me at this. You know, you don't really need me at this. I said, no, Nate, not only do I need you there, but I want you to be there. You need to be there. And he came and him and the GM and the assistant GM. And I think by the end of the meeting, they got what I was trying to do. The business people were much more understanding of what basketball needs are and vice versa. And I I think it definitely helped us.
2: I love that. So I want to ask you a little bit about your book, My Secret Journey from the Streets to the Boardroom. You talked about how an employer had an offer waiting for you. You told them the truth. And then you said, I'm never telling anyone again. I'm keeping it quiet when that offer fell through. So I was curious, you know, after so many years of keeping the secret, over 50 years, how did you keep it a secret so long? And then why now?
7: So one of the things I love about what you're doing here with family, because it was my daughter who actually convinced me that I should tell this story. Um, she, she worked on me for a number of years like, that. you need to share this story. People need to know it can inspire people. And so it was because of her that I decided to do it. And her and I started working on this probably 10, 12 years ago. And we would just kind of get together. She would ask questions. I talk. she'd record it and then go back and transcribe it. And we did this for years. And finally, about three years ago, we were like, okay, we have a document, but we now need to turn it into a book. And so we connected with an agency. We connected with uh, the publisher. But the reason for me to do this was, is uh, there, there are a couple of reasons. One, um, I think it can hopefully change people's perception of formerly incarcerated people. I know that there are a lot of people who know me now who can't believe the things that I did in the past, but I was a different person and I, I'm not that same person. And I think there are a lot of folks who deserve an opportunity to show that they have changed and that they have become hopefully contributors to to society. And so that was one of the main reasons to write it. And the other one was, you know, maybe there's some 16-year-old kid out there who is about to do something crazy and maybe this will make them stop and think about it or give it a second thought and realize that, They might do something that they're going to regret for the rest of their lives.
2: First of all, I commend you because telling a secret is scary and even one, you know, telling your past. And you started telling people in your inner circle, like Jordan Phil Knight and the NBA commissioner Adam Silver. So now that you have the book and more people are understanding your past, what's been the most common reaction that you've gotten from just people close to you? Like what have people, how have people responded?
7: It's been extremely overwhelming and encouraging the level of support that I've gotten. Two of the first people that I did share with were Phil Knight and Michael Jordan. And I think if either one of them had said, hey, you know, maybe you shouldn't do this, or I don't think this, I I might've been more reluctant, but they were both, extremely encouraging and supportive I, I'll never forget after kind of sharing with MJ and I told him hey my daughter was the one who kind of encouraged me to do this his first comment to me was I agree with your daughter you need to tell this story Phil Knight absolutely the same when I shared with Adam Silver same thing Adam was like wow he I remember him saying you know I've always had respect for you I have even more now because of where you come from and what you've been able to accomplish based on where you come from. So it's been amazing to get the support and encouragement that I've been able to get from people across the board. I know there's going to be negative people out there that you know won't appreciate or won't feel positive about what I'm doing, but I can't do anything about that. All I can do is, is continue to, to feel positive about what I'm doing. And I think the more I've gotten encouragement and support, the more I feel like I'm doing the right thing.
1: Well, you've definitely inspired me. Yes. I've had family members who have been incarcerated and, and there is a stigma, you know, when, when when people have been previously incarcerated and even for the person themselves, you know, like you said, um, you know, maybe it could help somebody that is about to do something crazy or even somebody who has been previously incarcerated that maybe doesn't think that they can change their life around, you know? So yeah, I love the whole messaging.
7: You, you, you know, Serena, one of the things that was, had the biggest impact on me. And one of the things that I think is is the most important is, you know, I I mentioned changing people's perception of formerly incarcerated people, but it's also changing your own perception of yourself. Absolutely. Believing that you can do something different, believing that you can change your life, that you can become a, a contributor. I mean, those are all things that it's it's hard for sometimes for people who have been in that situation to believe that they can they can do that. And, and so that's one of the other things that I'm hoping will come out of this, that it will have some folks who are, are either currently incarcerated or formerly incarcerated start to believe that they can change their life and the perception of who they are themselves.
3: This is a wonderful material for people who actually work with people in jails and in, who are incarcerated. Uh, earlier in my career, I did workshops for uh, inmates and people in prisons and things, trying to get them to think about what career and you know where would they go after they were released. And a book like this would be a great resource to share with people in that situation, because a lot of times they have no idea of, you know, what they would do or how to turn their lives around. So I I would hope that your people are pushing this to institutions so that those people who are who are incarcerated can maybe see what they can do and and so that it can inspire them. Yeah,
7: that absolutely is is one of the goals that we're pushing. I, I would love to have this in prisons and, you know, have people that needed have access to it. I, I, I would love for that to be the case. And we are working on that. We are. We are oh,
0: looking great, that. great.
2: I love that. Yeah. So, I mean, you talked about your daughter a lot and we talk about family and building things for the next generation. So I'm just curious, what does generational wealth mean to you?
7: That's something we should all be focused on is how can we get to a point where uh, we can pass on something as opposed to for a lot of us, when we pass on, people are trying to dig out of our debt, right? Yeah. <laughs> trying to figure out how to pay all the bills that we left behind and all that. And to me, I think what we should be doing is how can we build something that we can pass on to the next generation so that they don't have to start where we started. They can start at a different level than where we are. And I, and I, and I think to me, that's one of the things we should be focused on is how can each generation take it to the next level and pass on to the next generation a platform that they can build from, not something that they got to dig out of.
2: Wow. Well, Larry Miller, thank you so much for joining the family and I here on Montgomery & Company. I hope everybody had their notepad out because this is a high-profile, high-powered executive. (laughs) Look, okay, thank you, you because all kinds of nuggets, (laughs) okay? Okay. Let's go, because all kinds of nuggets were dropped, but thank you, Larry, for joining us on Montgomery & Company.
7: Uh, I, I would love to come back and join you guys Again, at some point. And, Come on, uh, Reddit!
2: said that us. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Larry.
7: All right. Thank you.
2: All right. So, listen, that's all we have today. But, man, every time I talk to giants like Killer Mike, like Larry Miller, I just. I feel a little bit smarter leaving the pod, and even with Killer Mike, how he was raised, how he was brought up, he's known the assignment from such a young age, and the way he pours into everyone, not just me, but he poured into my family, y'all heard it, and then Larry Miller, just the way that he's so open, I don't know if I could be that transparent about things that I wanted to keep private, but he did, and he wrote a book to tell his story, so we want to continue to bring people's perspectives, bring people's backgrounds to life. And we're gonna do it all here every Thursday on Montgomery and Company because, as you guys should know, it's a generational thing all the time here. We'll see y'all next week. Peace.
0: This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming. And his facility shines with Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces. Plus 24 seven customer support his venue never misses a beat. Call quitgranger.com or just stop by Granger, for the ones who get it done.
6: The headlines remind us daily. The world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine. Stop noticing, but you know better